Would you turn now with me, while you remain standing, in the Word of God to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. As we continue our series through Mark, we're reading verses 14 through 29 today. Mark 9, 14 through 29. Just reminding you what's gone before. We read about uh, Peter, James, and John uh, going with Jesus onto the mount where Jesus was transfigured. And, uh, and then as they were uh, descending the mountain, coming back, Jesus told them not to tell anybody. And there were these questions, which we looked at last week. And now we come, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has, it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him. And never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, instruct us, Lord, in your word. May upon our hearing we be strengthened in faith, and may it not be said of us that we are a faithless, unbelieving generation. Increase, O Lord, our faith. Bless the preaching of your word this morning. From this pulpit, may it be proclaimed boldly and clearly as it ought. Give us ears to hear. And we pray that your word would not return empty, but accomplish the purposes for which you send it forth in each and every one of us. For Jesus' sake, amen. You may be seated. 
Well, we just uh, read about the Mount of Transfiguration and the, the great heights of go- the glory of Jesus Christ witnessed by Peter, James, and John, and uh, not only of Christ, but also Moses and Elijah uh, meeting with and speaking with Jesus on the mountain. But God does not always allow us to stay on mountaintops. And he brings us down to reality. In fact, uh, you, like I, I am sure, have had those times in your life, those, those periods where you felt like you were spiritually on the mountaintop, that, that uh, you know, God had given special grace to you almost there, where, where you just had a sense of closeness to the Lord, you sensed that all is well, And then, well, God doesn't leave us on the mountaintops. And reality sets in. And it is often actually in the valleys that uh, we gain more spiritually going through the valleys. You see, we live in this sinful world. And though we may try to shield ourselves and our children from this world, nonetheless... There's no, there's no escaping it. We are in this world. Even Jesus dealt with this, experienced this. Verse 19 uh, of our passage, Jesus, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? You know, in Mark chapter 1, we read of Jesus' baptism. And there at, the, at his baptism, the Spirit came upon him. And the, the, the voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here is the height of knowing the love of God and of being filled with the Holy Spirit in a very unique way. And what happens? Immediately after that, the Spirit compels Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And how is that not also so often the pattern for Christ's people? Where we may be at one point overwhelmed with the love of God and the wonder of God and the glory of God and be on the mountaintop and almost immediately confronted with the harsh reality of living in this sinful world. Well, that is the pattern that we will experience till Christ returns or till we breathe our last. It's a reminder to us that we're not home. (laughs) We're not home. We are living in this sinful world. And Jesus, as he told the disciples, tells us, watch and pray. Watch and pray. We need to be vigilant to watch and pray because mountaintop experiences are not the norm. They're more the exception. So the disciples have this great mountaintop experience. Peter, James, and John return with Jesus from the mountaintop, and reality sets in. They are immediately confronted with the darkness 
of this age. They are immediately confronted seeing this boy who from childhood is demon-possessed. The description is awful that we have here in this passage. Behind these epileptic-type seizures and fits, you have an evil, demonic spirit. Well, congregation, today's passage is really about faith, about belief. Particularly, faith in the one in whom all things are possible. All things are possible, Jesus says. But clearly it wasn't possible when the disciples tried to cast out the demon. And there you see the ineffectiveness of faithlessness. The ineffectiveness or the powerlessness of faithlessness. A lot of syllables there. When the disciples, Peter, James, and John with Jesus, come back and meet up with the other disciples, the other nine disciples, we find that those disciples are arguing with the scribes. They're arguing with the teachers of the law. I'm not going to dwell along on that because we, we don't know exactly what they were arguing about. We're not told specifically what they're arguing about, but it seems to center on the fact that this boy is in great need, he is demon-possessed, and the disciples were not able to cast out the demon. Now, whatever they and the, the scribes were, were arguing about, we, we don't know. But think about it. Just, just think about the picture. Here is a boy in great need. Here is a father who is anxious for his son beyond words. And the leaders, the scribes, the the teachers of the law, and the disciples are arguing together. It's a really sad picture where the the father and the boy seem to be sidelined. They're not... They're they're, they're pushed into the margins because we've got something important to talk about. There's something, I think, seriously wrong when we get so caught up with our concerns while other people near us are perishing before our eyes. We're so wrapped up in our own agendas and miss those nearby who need help. That can be a, a, you know, a personal problem, but it can also be problems with churches. Uh, we often call those navel-gazing churches. They're always focusing on themselves. They're navels. They're looking at themselves and dealing with all the internal uh, matters that... There's no sense that there are people in the neighborhood who are perishing. We're just focused on our own arguments, internal squabbles. Well, let that not be said of us. 
We are to contend. We are to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But we are not to be contentious. We must stand for the word. We must stand for the truth. And that means sometimes we need to argue and battle for it. But let that never overshadow and take the place of our sympathy and love for neighbors who are perishing. It's so important we do not lose sight of that. The disciples were unable to cast out this demon. And I think Jesus tells us why. Oh, faithless generation. Verse 19. Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? It was Faithless means unbelieving. And what Jesus is doing here is he is including the disciples into this description of the faithless generation. It's quite a strong rebuke. And later, so we're asking the question, well, why? Why were the disciples unable to cast out the demon? Jesus gives the answer in verse 19, and then later again in verse 28, where he says, this kind can only be driven out by prayer. I don't think these are two separate things Jesus is saying. I think what Jesus is saying here is the root problem is faithlessness. The root problem is unbelief. And the fact that you went ahead with with trying to cast out this demon without first going to the Father in prayer indicates a lack of faith, a lack of, of belief. One's unbelief, the Christian's unbelief, I think, is most evident, most apparent in our lack of prayer. The disciples, it seems, tried to cast out this demon without first crying out to God. Lord, help us. Because obviously, God was able to cast out the demon. (laughs) There's no question about that. So what was the issue? The issue wasn't the power of God. The issue was the faithlessness of the disciples and not going to God. As though they had the power to cast out demons and not the Almighty Prayer, being fervent in prayer, is evidence that we believe. That we believe. B.B. Warfield said Calvinism, he defined Calvinism as Christianity on its knees. (laughs) Christianity on its knees. Because one thing about Calvinism is it relentlessly holds to the sovereignty of God in all things. And uh, relentlessly. It, it, it never gives an inch. God is sovereign. 
since that is so, what are God's people to do? Fall on our knees and pray to the one who has all things in his hands and who has total, complete, absolute control. Prayer is the God-ordained means. God-ordained means. When we talk about the power of prayer, I'm always uncomfortable with that, to be honest with you, because the power is in God. The power is in God. It's not as though prayer is some magical thing. Nonetheless, God has ordained that through prayer and by prayer, that is the God-ordained means by which God, God's power and his, his grace is brought upon our world. So we're, we're told to pray without ceasing. Prayer is the chief means by which we show to God our gratitude. That's Heidelberg Catechism. We show to God our gratitude in our prayer. But it's also the chief means by which we give expression of our dependence upon God and our trusting in God. The disciples failed in this. Let's not us also fail in this. Remember in Acts chapter 6, we read about, the, the, that's the passage that we turn to for the beginning of the office of deacons. Acts chapter 6, because there was an prob, internal problem in the church. Uh, you remember the Greek widows were not getting the same amount of food and attention as the Jewish widows were, and there was, there was unrest in the church, and things were going on, and the apostles determined that we're going to choose seven men who are faithful men to take care of these matters, but then we read, they said, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, to prayer and the ministry of the word. What a great uh, example that is for us. In our church order, in the United Reformed Churches, when it describes the uh, responsibilities, particularly of elders and of pastors, it says to continue in prayer. That's one of the responsibilities, to continue in prayer. In other words, we don't just pray as pastor and as elders. We don't just pray so that we can work and so that our work will be blessed. Prayer is our work. And that's very important that we, we grasp that. Part of being called to the office of elder, part of being called to the office of pastor is that we're on our knees for the congregation, for the people of God, praying for them. That's, that's our work. That's what, it, that's what we're called to do, to be in prayer. We don't just pray so that our work can be blessed. Prayer is our work. That's a mind shift, but it's an important one. But we're all called to pray. <laughs> we're all called to pray without ceasing. When we pray, we're saying, Lord, I can't, but you can. But you can. You see, there's, a, there's an honest, true sense that God actually is the ruler over all things. And the disciples failed to do that. 
We are all called to pray. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And Jesus says, oh, faithless generation or oh, unbelieving generation. Does that describe us? Does that describe us? Prayerlessness is practical atheism. Think about that. Prayerlessness is practical atheism. We may say we believe God, but if we don't pray, we don't really believe. And so it's no wonder that Jesus laments how long, he says, must I deal with this generation. We, we saw the same earlier, didn't we, in Mark 7 and in Mark 8, where we, we see Jesus sighing deeply in his spirit. There was just such a sense of the, the, the loneliness and the anguish of the perfect Son of God, the suffering servant, surrounded by evil and by unbelief. It tells us something important, is that we have the capacity to grieve our Savior. I don't want to grieve my Savior, but we have that capacity to do that. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. There's not a distinction there. If we grieve the Holy Spirit, <laughs> that's the Spirit of Christ, and we are grieving our Savior. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. We have the capacity to do that. And clearly in this passage, the prayerlessness and the faithlessness of the disciples grieved our Savior. But thankfully, you know, as we continue reading through Mark chapter 9 and through the rest of the chapters, Jesus never turned away from his disciples. Jesus continued to disciple his disciples. He did not give up on them, even though he was grieved by them. John says, having loved his own in the world, he loved them to the end. What a comfort that is that even when we do grieve our Savior with our faithlessness and prayerlessness, he remains faithful. And he loves his own to the end. Well, that ought to do nothing but cause us to fall on our knees. Say, oh Lord, how good you are. We are so dependent upon you. I cannot, but you can. So we see, first of all, the ineffectiveness of faithlessness, the powerlessness of faithlessness. But then let's look at the opposite and see the power of faith, uh, uh, and particularly the power, power of faith in Christ. What I want us to recognize that it is in faith 
that we're focusing on, and it's faith in the one in whom all things are possible. It's important that we recognize that and that we see that in this passage. You see, Jesus then immediately upon expressing his grief in chapter 9, in verse 19, says, bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And Jesus now shows his, his kindness, his concern to the father and the son. Instead of arguing theological issues to, on the sidelines, he's, where's the, where's the son? Bring him to me. I must deal with this. And the man brings him to him and says these words, verse 22, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And then, what an interesting thing, verse 23. Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Jesus is reversing things here. He's saying, the issue isn't, Jesus says, my ability to do anything. That's not the issue. I can do all things. <laughs> so the issue isn't my ability to do anything. The issue is, do you believe it? And so Jesus is, is putting it back onto the man. The man came to Jesus, if, if you can do anything, please help. We need it. And Jesus says, if you can. If you can. All things are possible. For one who believes, the issue isn't my ability to do anything. I can do anything. I can do, I can do all things. The issue is, do you believe? Jesus was calling this man at that point to a radical faith. Your son is demon-possessed. You've witnessed it for years. Do you believe I can heal him? It's a... A call to radical faith that believes that with God, nothing is impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. That, brothers and sisters, should make us pray boldly. <laughs> should make us pray boldly. For Coram Deo, I pray that these, every single one of these pews will be filled. We should pray boldly. Because God is able to do that. I, I, there's no question in my mind God is able to fill these pews. This room could be full. Lord, make it happen. That's our prayer. Because God is able to do all things, and we believe he's able to do all things. And may that, O oh Lord, be your will. Do you believe that God can do all things? And the man responds to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 don't, I think you have the same sense that I do. This touches my heart because this is me. <laughs> Lord, I believe. But I know myself, and there's also doubts. There's also weaknesses. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. This resonates, I think, in every Christian's heart, what this man 
says, how he responds. I don't think what he is saying is, Lord, cause my faith to grow and to increase to such a point where it is worthy of your blessing. (laughs) I don't think that's what he is saying here because... Uh, that just simply, we would never have that. We would, our faith could never be so worthy of God's blessing because our faith at its best is tainted with sin, isn't it? It's tainted with weakness and unbelief and doubt. But Christ is gracious to those whose faith is weak. Praise God. Christ is gracious to those whose faith is weak. As I've said before, it's so important. It isn't strong faith that saves, it's faith. And it isn't weak faith that condemns, it's no faith. (laughs) It's very important for us to see that. It's not strong faith that saves, it's faith. And it's not weak faith that condemns, it's no faith that condemns. And wherever we might be in that, 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 that faith level or continuum, weak faith gets the same Christ as the strong faith. Praise God for that. Weak faith gets the same Christ as strong faith. But this man's cry is of a believer that doesn't want to stay at weak faith. Oh, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. We're not told, but I hope the disciples heard that. Said yes. That's what we should have said. That's what we should have said. Well, then we see why, at least one reason why Jesus is worthy to put, in our, to put our faith in. He says, if you will not believe my words, then believe me for the works I do. And now he shows us the works he does. I command you, he says, come out of him and never enter him again. Mark here is picturing for us the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. And it is a great picture. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Here is Jesus Christ, God incarnate, sovereignly commanding the power of darkness, one of his creatures, one that he made, the, the, the power of darkness to submit to his authority. We're seeing here the power of Jesus' authority, the power of his spoken word, no less powerful than let there be light. And the light couldn't say, well, not yet. I'm not going to shine at this moment. Let there be light meant there was light. That, That is the power of God's word. And so when Jesus, the word made flesh, says, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. That left that demon with no 
choice. No choice. The same power, the same dominion when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead got up and walked out the tomb. And so wonderful. Not only did Jesus say, come out of him, never enter him again. Talk about comfort. Talk about comfort to the, the child, but also to the father. We can be assured that as long as this young boy lived, he was never demon-possessed again. Because Jesus said, never enter him again. That's the power of Jesus' authority, the power of his spoken word, which left the demon with no choice. This is the Lord that we serve. This is the Lord who is. He has all power and authority. He has dominion over all. Paul tells us that there are powers and dominions that we don't see, and these are our enemies. In Ephesians 6, verse 2, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the, holy, in the heavenly places. That's reality, Paul says. That's, that's the battle that we wage. But what this passage points us to, directs us to, is that our enemy and enemies, the devil and his demonic forces, are a defeated enemy. They are a vanquished foe. Christ here is picturing that for us, but we know that when he hung upon the cross, he made a spectacle of them. And he defeated Satan, crushing his head. Christ's death and resurrection broke the back of Satan, and he is a vanquished foe. That's our Lord. That's our Savior. That's the head of this church. What confidence we can have. So just a couple of things I want to say in closing. Number one, do you believe? And is that belief showing itself in prayer? Prayer is evangelism. Prayer is an expression of our true belief. If you have unbelieving friends, if you have unbelieving children, pray. Pray. Is that a mark of Coram Deo? Prayer. The other thing I just simply want to say, I know I just said it, but that Christ has defeated Satan. He did that by his death and his resurrection. He died to take away our sins and to redeem us to the Father, and he rose again for our justification. Do you believe that? That is exactly 
precisely why we come to the Lord's table every Sunday. It is a recognition of that. It's a remembrance of that. It is a, a, a knowledge that our uh, uh, Savior who died, who, who, whose body was broken and who shed blood is in, at the right hand of God with all power and authority and he feeds and nourishes our souls today. And it is also a picture. So it's a picture of the past. Christ died 2,000 years ago, and this is pictures that. It's a reminder. Do this in remembrance of me. There's something happening present. He is nourishing our souls today. Not only do we hear the good news that Christ died and rose again, but now God condescends to give us a feeling of it and, and, and a tasting of it to, to further... Uh, uh, drive home, to further nail home in us the truth of it. It increases our faith, but also it points us to that day when we're going to sit at the table with our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, at the wedding feast of the Lamb. It points us to that. Jesus said, I will not drink wine with you again until in my Father's kingdom. We're saying, oh, Lord, we look forward to that. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly.